Okay, welcome back to Fast Performance then. My name is Tim Davies. Great to have you back. And today we've got another podcast. Again, another story about me trying to kill students or students trying to kill me. I don't know which way around it is. We'll have a look, shall we? But I just want to say before I start, uh, a big thanks for everyone who has downloaded the podcast that preceded this one, which was Why Fighter Pilots Keep the Math Simple and Why You Should Too. That's almost at 1,000 downloads, which has been the most popular of the podcast that I've done. And for a very small site that is self-funded, uh, like mine, in the evenings, at weekends, that kind of thing, um, I just want to say thanks for that, to be honest. And if you haven't heard that one and you want to get better at maths, then go and download it. We'll just push that over a 1,000 and then we can have a big celebration. And that'll be absolutely great. And so before we start then, I would just like to say that the stories I talked to you about in these posts, as you know, have actually happened to me or another instructor. And if it's another instructor, I say a friend of mine did this. But if it's me, of course, then I do tell you. Um, so as I said, another way that um, uh, a lesson can be learned from the experiences that we have in the air in the Royal Air Force. So let's get on with it and shall we uh, with this post then, which is why pilots think big and why you should too. Eject, eject, screamed my student from the front seat of our military training jet. That got my attention. Now, there's probably not a situation that requires more of an immediate ownership of a problem than in the precise moment when a pilot calls for an ejection to be initiated from an aircraft they are flying. If we were to break down exactly what would happen in the next few seconds, it might help us to understand the magnitude of my student's decision. Initiating the ejection sequence is done by an aggressive pull of the ejection seat firing handle, which detonates explosive miniature cord that is embedded in the canopy above your head. This canopy now explodes into millions of razor-sharp fragments only a few inches from your face. Simultaneously, a telescopic tube with two explosive charges is fired at the rear of the seat, which starts to move it up the guide rails activating an emergency oxygen supply. Personal equipment and communication leads are automatically severed. Leg and arm restraints rapidly draw your limbs in towards your body to minimize injuries that will be caused by your sudden projection into an exceptionally violent airflow. As the seat moves up and out of the cockpit, a rocket pack is fired by a lanyard attached to the cockpit floor you are now subjected to 25 times the force of gravity, which is so brutal that often your head will impact your knees should you not have time to adopt a proper ejection posture. A steel rod, known as the drogue gun, is now fired and extracts a small parachute to stabilize the seat in its new environment. Above 16,500 feet, a barostatic mechanism prevents the main parachute from opening as the thin air will render you unconscious if your oxygen supply was to run out at this height. A time delay unit deploys the main parachute below this altitude once it has calculated that it won't be ripped apart due to the high wind speed. The seat then automatically falls away allowing you to enjoy what is left of your parachute descent. The whole thing is over in about two seconds and often, if still conscious, you'll get a privileged view of a very large fireball where your once exceptionally valuable but completely uninsured fighter jet has just parked itself into the nearest orphanage. Now you just have the rest of your parachute ride to come up with the most convincing story you can think of as to why you've just reduced your nation's warfighting capability by one 
very expensive asset. When a friend of mine ejected from his aircraft, it was at the last possible moment and he was lucky to survive. His jet was brand new and had only just been delivered to the squadron. But if that wasn't bad enough, it ended up crashing into a police car that was luckily unoccupied at the time. He told me that as he hung beneath the parachute, he actually had to look away from the fireball, such was the dawning realisation of the magnitude of the destruction that he was now responsible for. And that's just covering the ejection sequence itself. What comes next is the bit the pilots really dread. The cutting away of the flight gear. The trip to the civilian accident and emergency department where, if not handed over by an experienced search and rescue crewman, the doctors will look at you in bewilderment having little idea about what to make of your newfound spinal compression. The following lonely days are punctuated by the boss who comes to tell you that everything is fine and to just take your time. And whilst desperate to get home, you find yourself unable to leave as you don't have any clothes to wear. Apparently a naked pilot on a train is largely frowned upon by those not familiar with the post-ejection get-you-home process. Then comes a service inquiry, which is the investigation that is done into the utter mess and destruction that you have just delivered onto a once peaceful world. Having been on one of these, the best advice that I can give you is to just be as honest as possible. It will take months and months, and the questioning will feel like it will never end. But it will end. And normally, by being publicly criticised about the performance you delivered when in a highly dynamic and volatile flight regime, which is all captured over the space of a nanosecond. What makes it worse is that this is done by people who have spent many months in a warm office poring over your flight data records whilst drinking excessive amounts of tea and having the luxury of something called hindsight. Here's a quote. I've had 40 years in the air, but in the end, I'm going to be judged by 208 seconds. That was Captain Sullenberger, US Airways Flight 1549, which had an emergency landing on the Hudson River. And that was on how, despite his four decades as a pilot, this will be his legacy. So when my own student called for us to eject, in all honesty, it came as a bit of a surprise, and mainly because, in my mind, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the aircraft. But, as he was quite excited, I thought I'd give it some attention, and I began to rapidly run through the implications of his actions on the next few months of my life. I mean, I had a barbecue to attend at the weekend. But I'd been here before. And as my thousand hours of instructional time would later prove, I figured I kind of knew what he was thinking. Stay with the aircraft, I replied. The fact was, he was an inexperienced student fast jet pilot who, although wrong in his assessment of our survivability odds, had just made an exceptionally mature call and one that I was later to praise him for. He'd become big at a time when his current role demanded that he should have been small. Every day, people achieve great things. Sometimes we get to hear about them in the papers or on the TV, but more often than not, we don't. Now, I believe 
that there is one thing that sets people who achieve greatness apart from everyone else, and that is self-belief. Now, I talk about this a lot. The building of confidence in the younger generations and those who have yet to discover their purpose in life is something that I have a passion for, and it can be difficult in a world where social media very often highlights an individual's inadequacies. I have a friend who is taking six months out to tour Australia with his family. Now, shouldn't I be doing that too? Or another friend who's just bought a Lamborghini. I mean, where's my fast car purchase? A buddy who has just bought a mini castle for a home. I mean, why am I not yet Lord of the Manor? And here's a quote. If I had a reality TV show about my life, it would probably be called Keeping Up With The Accomplishments Of People I Know On Facebook. And actually, I did actually find that on Facebook. Now, it can be difficult to build any kind of self-confidence when we only see the world from other people's carefully created view. In my mind, my social feeds are populated by people doing awesome things and who are living fantastic lives. A sharp contrast from where I often find myself, at work in a soulless office in the midst of a dark British winter. But although I know that reality is not as rose-tinted as my computer screen tells me it is, I can't but help feel that I am in some way missing out. And that makes me sad. And when I'm sad, I don't really feel like changing the world. And this is a bad thing. This is a bad thing because all of a sudden, I'm starting to feel small. I'm starting to not be a beacon of hope for my former self. And I'm certainly not out there setting an example for others to follow. And yet I can't but help feel that we all have a responsibility to not react to how others or their online content makes us feel. It is our duty to not remain small because we worry that we'll embarrass our friends if we go for that promotion or a new job or what our partner might say if we decide to drop a bad habit or if we think we might upset others if we decide to change. Here's a quote. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people will not feel insecure around you. We're all meant to shine, as children do. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give others permissions to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And that's from Marianne Williamson, who is an author. Inside all of us, there is potential. We are all meant to shine. It is there whether you believe it or not. But to get from where you are now to where you want to be takes two things. You must believe in yourself and you have to do something. Now, incredibly, doing the two things is very difficult for most people. I once read about a self-help guru who said that the biggest problem he had was getting people to the stage of doing something. He said that he could persuade people that they had the potential, they had the belief, but he couldn't get them to action anything. Having thought about this for a while, I wonder whether the people who he was helping ever truly believed that they could make 
any kind of real change to their lives at all. Had he really convinced these people that they could change, or had he convinced himself that they could? Now there's a girl in my village who, two years ago, decided to get herself fit. She was a little overweight, but nothing noticeable, but she was frustrated that in her 30s she had let herself go. As I drove to work one morning, I saw her out walking on a familiar running route. For the next two years, I would see her progress from that walk to a walk jog, then a jog run, and finally, a run. The other day, I was driving home with a buddy of mine when we saw her doing some sprint training. I get so jealous of these fitness types, he said. I told him her story. So why do more people not make the change that will ultimately get them what they want in life? Underconfidence and a lack of self-belief. We are all social creatures and allow people to talk to us as if we were, in some way, under their control. Bosses, parents, friends and spouses all contribute to our negative self-image and we listen to them because we feel for some reason that they must know what's right for us. Think about it, it's true. Why do you ask someone if a piece of clothing looks good on you or ask your mate's advice about a car you were thinking of buying? You want social validation. It's natural, but we do need to recognise it for what it is. A lack of belief in our own ability to make the decision. We are scared that if we make the decision, then we are alone responsible for it. Surely, it's easier to offload that responsibility onto other people. We abdicate the burden of our own lives to others because it's easier for us to cope with when we fail to achieve our full potential. We fear failure. Our fear of failure is what prevents us from doing something that might put us out there in front of our friends, parents and the world. But we must realise that it is not our friends or family who have to wake up each morning with the realisation that we still have to go to work at the job we hate. That we still have the hangover caused by the drinking that we need to do something about or that we are still overweight because we haven't yet done the exercise that we promised we would do. You haven't yet accepted the fact that your life is yours and you alone are responsible for it. And that's fine until today. Successful people know that they are responsible for their own life, no matter what their situation. Their weaknesses and past failures are all theirs. They own them all. It is just a poor image of yourself that is stopping you from making the changes you want to make. People won't believe that you can do it if you don't believe that you can do it. Here's a quote. Refereeing that World Cup final between Australia and New Zealand in front of 85,000 people and the millions of people watching at home, scrutinising every single decision you make under a huge amount of pressure, was nothing compared to the challenge of accepting who I was. Accepting who I was then saved my life. That's Nigel Owens, international rugby union referee on coming out as gay in 2007. If you believe that you are a certain something, then you will do everything you can to uphold that ingrained image of yourself. You might believe that you can't be a doctor because your background was working class. That you'll always be a smoker because that's just what your friends do. Or that you're happy to be overweight because that's 
who I am. You are reinforcing your own stereotype every time you speak negatively of your situation. Now, I failed all of my A-levels because I didn't believe that people like me went to university. Neither of my parents had gone. They both worked in the public sector. They weren't wealthy and we were just not that sort of family. But after failing academically for many years, I eventually ended up joining the Royal Air Force and becoming the most senior fast jet flying instructor at its top flying school. All because I changed the way I looked at myself and learned to believe that I could be successful. In flying training, we embrace the notion of failing fast and often, as we know that considerably more learning comes from failure than from success. Uh, here's a quote. I consider our Coca-Cola venture to be one of the biggest mistakes we ever made. But I still wouldn't change a thing. That was Richard Branson, CEO of Virgin. And if you're waiting until the stars align before you start, don't. You will lose a lot of opportunities if you wait for the right time. Nothing will ever be perfect, no matter how hard we try. Start now and start small. Very small. And here's a quote. So I reached out and I grabbed a rock. And I reached out as far as I could and I drew a line in the dirt in front of me. I said to myself, I'm going to crawl to that until my feet hit it. If I'm still alive, I'm going to do it again. And that's what I did. I drew a line, crawl to it until my feet hit it, fall down a hill, crawl up another hill and draw another line. And I did that for seven miles. That's Marcus Luttrell, US Navy SEAL and author of Lone Survivor on crawling out of a firefight after being paralyzed from the waist down in an engagement during Operation Red Wings. Battle of Abascar, Afghanistan. Now, when my student called for us to eject, he did something that most students would never do. He challenged the authority of someone who, to him, was an exceptionally experienced and senior flying instructor and also the captain of the aircraft. The maneuver I was flying was called a practiced force landing, which is flown should we lose power in our single engine Hawk T1 jet that I was instructing on at the time. This profile demands a high nose-down attitude in order to maintain airspeed. This means that from about 800 feet above the runway, the rate of descent of the aircraft places it temporarily outside of survivable ejection seat parameters. If my student had ejected, we would have both been killed and the aircraft destroyed. The profile wasn't taught to students at his stage of training. He had no way of knowing that, although it looked dangerous, it was actually quite safe. And the reason he had no way of knowing it was safe was because I'd failed to tell him. It was my fault and he'd done the right thing. He'd owned the situation, took responsibility for it and grew big in a split second against overwhelming pressure we taught him well, and in a different scenario, he may go on to save his or his flight crew's lives in the future. So if you stay small, if you never try something new, you never step outside of your comfort zone, and you never take responsibility for your life, you'll always just be small. You owe it to those around you to be better than that, 
The world will never benefit from you staying where you are. Think of all the people you care about. Your settling for a mediocre life is not helping them. You have to be the example that they need to see. And only when you do that will you give them permission to do the same. So stop blaming others and take responsibility for where you are today. When you take responsibility for your life, something amazing happens. You get to choose the direction it goes in. Don't ever be afraid to fail and don't fear the success that you're about to achieve. Guys, girls, that is it. That's the post. Okay, thanks for your feedback in the comments. If you want to hook up anything on the uh, the podcast comments, in fact, that really helps me, I've been told by other bloggers, to get some um, reviews and stuff on the, podcast, on the podcast comments. So if you could bounce back there and just go, yeah, I like the post, but Tim sounds like he's got a bit of a cold, because I do have a cold, by the way. That would be great for me. I'd really appreciate that because it helps get me up there. And then anyone else looking to join the military or the airlines or anything like that will be able to find my posts and uh, maybe listen to some of, the, some of those details. So really appreciate you listening in. Um, as I said, any comments I act on, any emails I reply to, anything that you need help with, then get in contact with me. Obviously, I'd rather you search the site first. And also, if you're very young, maybe if you're below the age of 14, it might be worth you searching Google first for your answer. Um, Because it does save me a lot of time, as I'm sure you can imagine, I am reasonably busy uh, doing three jobs. So that will be great. Okay, but I really appreciate your uh, support here, guys. Hopefully, I'm giving you something of value. If I'm not and you want to see something else or something different or whatever it is, let me know and I'll try and uh, do that for you, okay? Thanks so much. Tim Davies, Fast Hit Performance.